Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I, I have dealt. Who is the I here? That is the author. It's Dr. Luke. Uh, there is no d- discussion among the commentators. You know, in some letters, like some letters of Paul, uh, some of the other books of the Bible, there's discrepancies on who wrote them. You get nobody argues. This is the work of Luke, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And you get that right here. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, that is his, his um, audience. Theophilus means beloved of God. And so Luke is writing to him a second book. Notice it says, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, if we're going to set Acts in its context, we need to go back to to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. So flip back with me there. Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And so Luke says in Acts 1, in the first book. And so we got to know what the first book is. Otherwise, you don't understand what's going on. Often in the ancient culture, um, authors would write a single work, but break it up into two books. It would be like you getting all the sermons by Mark Dever on the Old Testament, one sermon for every book, and all the sermons by Mark Dever on the New Testament, one sermon for every book, and three extra sermons there in his one work on the ser- preaching through the entire Bible divided up into two volumes, Promises Made and Promises Kept. And so if, if uh, Theophilus were alive today, and you were to go visit his library, it probably wouldn't be digital. It probably wouldn't even be in books bound like this, right? It would be scrolls like we sang about, or tablets, not to be confused with iPod tablets or those things. But if he were today and he had these, he was old school, he would say, this is the gospel of Luke, and this is the Acts of the Apostles. And so that is what it looks like. And so we're in Luke now. And Luke says to Theophilus in Luke 1, 1 through 4, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. One of the reasons we know Theophilus is a real person and not just code word for beloved of God is that phrase most excellent is never used in Greek with just a a neutral concept. It's always used with a person. And so Luke was writing to Theophilus about a narrative of things that have been accomplished that you may have certainty concerning the things that which you've been taught. And so the introduction of Luke in those four verses is actually one in the Greek. And it was to show the history of our faith, helps us train others in the certainty of our faith. And he's handing this down to a real person. It's a real message about what really happened. And even here, Luke gives a context. He says there's a narrative, and you can see it up there, of things that have been accomplished among us. Well, what's he talking about? Things that have been accomplished. Well, first, there are things that had to have been promised, and then they were accomplished among Luke and Theophilus. And so where do we go from there? No problem. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have it, 
to the table of contents. If you don't have a table of contents, everything will be up here for you. But Luke was talking about things accomplished. Well, what are these things? Well, if you have a table of contents, I'm going to give you some hooks to hang your Bible book hats on, so to speak, like that nail gun's hanging there. We drape the cord over the sawhorse there. Here you can hang the books of the Bible on this. But first I want to begin in Genesis. Where did it all begin? It begins in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the end of Genesis in 26 through 28, he gives the pinnacle and the purpose of creation. He said, let us make man in our image and let him fill the earth and subdue it. That is our purpose in life. We are to fill this earth and we're to subdue it. In fact, the creation mandate, if you wanted to put it in the language we're using for this series, this is all about building to the glory of God. It's all about cultivating the earth, constructing the earth to the glory of God. At the end of chapter 2, he gives a primary primary unit through which this will go. It is the family unit that the man was joined with his wife and they were naked and unashamed. And that idea of family will permeate the scriptures so much that it permeates the New Testament when it talks about the church, that God is our father, Jesus is our brother. Paul calls all over brothers, brothers, brothers. We would say today, brothers and sisters. This is a, this is a spiritual family. And then in three, one through seven, comes the curse. One through seven comes the curse. And then immediately in that curse is included the salvation through a person. Those first three chapters of your Bible are worth memorizing. They're worth knowing cold because all the problems we face in the world come from really those first seven verses in chapter three. And so that's where it all began. But if you wanted to see kind of how the Bible fits together, I'm going to walk you through that in the next few minutes and just show you Jesus from all the scriptures. And so we begin with the pillars of the Pentateuch. The pillars of the Pentateuch. These are the five books that built the old Hebrew Bible. These, all the Hebrews would look back to these five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And you see God's choosing to create the world. He didn't have to create the world. He was perfect in his trinity. He didn't have to create the world. He chose to create the world. And then he chose from among the people of Ur, one man, and he chose a nation. And he reiterates that in Deuteronomy. It is God's choosing. And then that people at the end of Genesis finds itself enslaved. They're trapped. They're crying out. And so in Exodus, you see this redeeming, this way out. The Greek for Exodus is way out, that he redeems them, and then he reveals himself to them. It was then in the tabernacle, and it it would later on be in the temple. And then you get Leviticus, this fellowshipping. How should I have fellowship with God? You had to have a provision because God, he, you realize people were sinful. You had to have a person, a priest to give that provision which created a pathway to God. Does it sound any different in the New Testament? The provision is Jesus himself. The priest is Jesus himself and he has made us a pathway. Hebrews uh, ten nineteen says, let us enter the new and living way. And then numbers uh, for all you accountants out there. This is a good book for you. There's a lot of numbers in there. Um, they, they often recount them. And I remember when I was working at Arthur Anderson, I said, I'm going to check. I'm going to make sure this Bible's for real. 
like I was going to prove it wrong. So I was at Arthur Anderson, and every chapter where it had numbers, I'd get out my little, it was called a tin key back then. You know what those are? Yeah, I could do it without even looking at it. And I would add up those numbers, and lo and behold, they add up. The numbers add up. But what, the, what Numbers is about is about this chastening. The people were promised this land and they go and spy it out. And Joshua and Caleb come back and say, let's do this. And everybody said, El said, no, we can't. They're bigger than us. No, we can do it. And so he, he let one generation pass away and he raised up a new generation. This chastening and this raising up of a new generation. And then in Deuteronomy, they had to retell the law. They had to instruct again. And in this you see, in Genesis 3.15, from the seed of woman will crush the seed of Satan. And you get this promise of Jesus. You get the picture of it. The picture used over and over and over in the Old Testament of salvation is the Exodus. And you get a great picture of the sacrifice. And people say, why is Leviticus in the Bible? It's so bloody. It's so gruesome. It's so technical. And there's so much to cover. You have got... Uh, provisions here and you've got provisions for the people who couldn't afford the provisions. It's all pointing to Jesus Christ who is the perfect provision. And then you show that you've got to follow God's promises because God, even His own people, if they don't listen to Him, will not bless them. We've got to listen to God's Word and follow God's Word. And to be retold it in Deuteronomy, we had to be retold it over and over again. And our Savior when challenged by Satan, three times quoted Deuteronomy. When's the last time we've quoted Deuteronomy? He knew his Bible. And then you move into the links to the land. Joshua judges Ruth. Joshua conquers the land. Judges rule the land. And Ruth comes into the land by this one called the kinsman redeemer. This one who, she was not a Jewish girl. She was a Moabite. But through marriage, To the kinsman redeemer, she comes into the land. And that is where we get the story of Ruth. We've gone through the book of Genesis from this pulpit. We've gone through Ruth. We've covered judges in Sunday school. And then you move into the makeup and the mess up of the monarchy. That in 1 Samuel, see this transition from judges to kings. And you see King Saul come in. And then 2 Samuel, you see David becomes king, reigns as king, and then he commits the transgression. And then in 1 Kings, you see this united kingdom. And through Solomon, at least through the first 10 chapters, this this kingdom grows big, so much that the queen of Sheba comes and just is in awe. Literally, in the Bible, she's breathless at the um, expanse and the glory of that kingdom. And then in 11, from there on, we get this 2 Kings of division, and First Chronicles is actually a positive history of Second Samuel. If you were to see that, if you if you just read First or Second Samuel by itself, it's pretty uh, bleak. But if you read uh, First Chronicles, you get a positive picture in the midst of all that transgression. God will triumph through His grace, and then you get Second Chronicles, which is really just a history of First and Second Kings. And so that is the history of Israel as a nation right there. It's made up and it's messed up. And so you're still longing for this king to come. And then they get kicked out of the land. And then you see in the next phase, this return of the remnant, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And Ezra goes and restores the land. The temple is built. But there's this weeping and this wailing. And they're wondering, 
will the temple ever be as glorious as it was in the days of Solomon? There's still this anticipation. And then Nehemiah, that was the second book I preached here. Let's build something together if you've been here for that long. That Nehemiah came back and through prayer, through planning, through perspiration, through working together as a team. You remember that famous chapter in chapter 3. And he works next to him and next to him and next to her and next to him. And they worked together and they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. God can do great things when God's people come together. And then you have Esther. She is responding to God's providence. That famous saying, for such a time as this, Esther, maybe this is why God put you in that position. And so the remnant return, there is hope. And then right in the middle of your Bible, you're given the wisdom of the word. We've covered Job in Sunday school, at least at a high level, to deal with suffering and the sovereignty of God. Psalms, we go through those periodically to deal with the songs of God. It's God's prayer book. How do you pray? Go to the Psalms. And if you remember, we just came out of that series. It was one, it's up and down, and a couple of weeks we're down, and then it's up, because that's how we are. We're, we're, we're moving back and forth, and we need to know how to pray in each situation. Proverbs is, is living, and it's simple. The Proverbs, if you just read them, they're very simple, so much so over and over again. Solomon is instructing his sons, his daughters, through the word of God. Yet, you get Ecclesiastes like that because life isn't just simple. It's very complicated. And so, as God would have it, he puts these Proverbs that are easy to memorize and easy to understand right next to Ecclesiastes. I can't wait to teach that one in here. I don't know what kind of setup we'd have for Ecclesiastes. Maybe tie-dye or something. I don't know. And then you get the Song of Solomon. We covered that last year. The idea of wisdom for the marrieds. And then you get this special section in Scripture of the prophets. And people often approach the prophets. And they get, one, because they're like 66 chapters long. And they get scared of these prophets. I don't really understand them. Let me, let me show you a couple things from the prophets. Isaiah through Ezekiel, call your major prophets, because they're the ones that wrote the, the biggest... Uh, portions of scripture, except for Lamentations is five chapters. I don't get it, but I'll, I'll ask in heaven what, just to keep me wondering why five chapters in Lamentations, because it went with Jeremiah. I know he's the author. Yet you get 14 chapters of Zechariah, uh, nine in Amos, 14 in Hosea. Those Hosea through Malachi we just covered in Sunday school deal with um, the Minor prophets, not minor in theology, just minor in the, in the length of their writing. And each one of these deals with the judgment and salvation. And so when you're reading a prophet, look for this judgment that's coming and the hope. And sometimes that hope in a prophet, if you've been in our Sunday school class, I remember, I think it was Amos, the hope doesn't come until the last four verses. And so there's a lot of God's judgment. But the key thing about prophets is they're not saying anything new. No prophet ever said anything new. They were just looking back to the pillars of the Pentateuch. And they were saying, guys, remember the law. Remember what happened when you didn't follow the law. There was this makeup and the mess up of the monarchy. And here's what I'm telling you. Here's what's coming. If there is anything new, it's there's this coming judgment. And you must turn from your sin. But with that, there's a coming Messiah. And there's this anticipation. And then you land right in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to look at them in a little different order. But you see John, Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, We just 
are handing out some Bibles to our youth. It's for youth to give away to youth. It's the Gospel of John with children's, not children's, but with youth notes on there. Because everybody wants to go read the Gospel of John because it's, it's not a synoptic and it's a pretty easy read, but it shows the deity of Jesus Christ. It shows that he said seven times, I am, and he filled it in to connect him with the great I am of Exodus. Seven times he does miracles. They are called signs in the Gospel of John to lead you, to show that what he says and what he does, they all match up. And then you get Matthew, the king of kings, starts in the beginning uh, where it says, Jesus is God with us. And he ends his book with, lo, I'm with you always. So you see the presence of God and then the the uh, gentlemen from the east come. The Magi say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then it just walks and he shows over and over and over again. Exousia is the Greek word, over. It's more than any other gospel, this idea of authority. Jesus did this with authority. Jesus, it often said he spoke with authority, not like those of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so you get this deity who's becoming king, but he's not just a king in the book of Mark, which we covered from one, one uh, time in Christmas all the way through Easter. We, just like Mark moved fast, we've moved fast through it. And we saw that our Savior is not just a king, but he's a servant. I did not come to, to uh, take, but to give my life as a ransom for many. And then you get the Gospel of Luke, the most humane of the Gospels, the Son of Man. Uh, you, the birth narrative is two chapters long, and then the baptism and te- temptation are two chapters long. And you get this, if you're turning back to the Gospel of Luke, you get this ministry until the time. And in Luke 9.50, Luke chapter 9, verse 50, he says this. Luke says, It's actually in 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the book of Luke turns on that 951. And so it's the ministry of the passion. And if you were to follow that, you see Jesus training his 12, Jesus being opposed, Jesus teaching, Jesus calling people to repentance, Jesus performing miracles. And we did a a quick study through the gospel of Luke when we did food networking about how to communicate the gospel around the table. And we just, every time you see Jesus eating with people, communicating the truth. And then in Luke 24, you see the resurrection. And then you see this road to Emmaus. The biggest part of the chapter is these two disciples were confused. And you see that not only does Jesus live, but Jesus instructs them through the scriptures. He takes them through the entire scriptures and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. I just did a survey of the prophets. He went through all the prophets. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And if you have a handout, you see the end of the gospel of Luke there. I put together for you in a table just to show you the seamlessness through which Luke writes uh, the gospel of Luke into the book of Acts. Matthew, you get a resurrection account. You get the reports of the guards and you get the great commission. Mark, you get a resurrection account and you get some appearances and another commission. Same commission, different angle. John, you, you get two full chapters of the resurrection and the appearances. And then in Corinthians, you see the resurrection and you see all the appearances to Peter, greater than 500, James, and last of all, Paul. But you see Luke, if you're looking at your table there in Luke, you get a resurrection account 
and in Acts 1, a resurrection account. You get these appearances and instruction from Jesus in Luke 13 through 35 and Acts 1, 3 through 7. And then you get a great commission. And the only gospel, did you know this? The only gospel that records an ascension is the gospel of Luke. And it just seamlessly flows. If you were to turn the page, you get verse 50 through 53, and you turn the page and you go to Acts, and you pick it up right where we began. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Did you see that? This is all he began to do and teach. Jesus is still doing. Jesus is still teaching. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I wonder where John 21 fits in there. Because Peter said, I'm going fishing. And then in 6 through 11, so when they had come together, maybe John 21 fits right in there. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, can you imagine that scene? Jaw dropped. There's your Savior. And as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking to heaven? It's kind of, you, you, you remember John 14 and 16? I must go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll send someone. You've gotten your Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go, make disciples of all nations. Lo, I'm with you all. You've got all that. Why do you stand here gazing? This Jesus, whom was taken up from you in heaven, will come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And we'll dive into all of that next week. In Luke, Jesus began to do and teach. In Acts, he's continuing his work. And you know what? You don't have to turn there, but just listen to Revelation. Listen to the end of the story. It's up on the screen for you. Revelation twenty two twenty, and he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. That Jesus who ascended will come back just like he promised. And John says, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. There you have it, in less than an hour, the entire Bible. Focused on Jesus. The Old Testament, Old Testament anticipates Jesus. The Gospels manifest Jesus. The epistles from Romans to Jude explain life with Jesus. Revelation shows you the coming of Jesus. And Acts, what we're going to settle on for the next so many weeks, I don't know how many, is that spread of the message of Jesus Christ. That is the big picture of Scripture. And Acts falls right just right of center and talks about the greatest construction project ever. And you say, where do you get the idea of the church and construction? I, I take it from Scripture in Matthew 16, verse 18. This is what Jesus said to Peter. 
I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build, that's construction language, my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so some have misinterpreted it that they were going to build it on Peter, on this rock, and they've confused his name with what Jesus was talking about. And so we go and we establish some man who literally stands in the place of Jesus. It's not good. And when he speaks, God speaks. And so we have now this competing authority. It's not just your Bible, but you have this figure in the Roman Catholic Church. But the answer is right there before. He's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the message. I tell you, Peter, and on this neutral, neuter rock, not a masculine rock, but a neuter rock, what is that that neutral thing he's talking about. In verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. They're all trying to figure it out. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, this is the same Simon Peter who was rebuked, just paragraphs later, said, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, this message. But it was my Father who is in heaven. So the big question is this message, this message of the gospel of salvation, which again was, was in a sense concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. That is the great story of Scripture. That is what Jesus is building his kingdom on is the gospel of his name. And you're thinking to yourself, well, how can this help me? How can a quick overview of the scripture help me right where I'm at? It's because you and I, brothers and sisters, are a part of something bigger than ourselves. We cannot make it in this life on our own. You and I and Ashley and I can't even make it in this life on our own. It's not just about Judd, and then it's not just about Judd and Ashley and their kids. It is about us being a part of the church, a part of the greatest story ever written, a part of the biggest, best construction project ever. And so how does this deal with you? You See yourself as the part of the bigger story. Find your life in here. And if you need help, like we just discussed in Sunday school this morning, it was a sweet time. If you need help, we're here for you told somebody in that class today, we're here for you. And we're going to work it out together. All right? You don't have to worry about that. We're going to do it together. And so it's all contained for us how we should do this. The first group, the first time the church is called the church in the book of Acts. And some have called it the Acts of the Apostles. Some have called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And both are right. One emphasizes when it says the Acts of the Apostles, that's a little too centered on man because we've seen from the Gospels and you and I have seen from our own lives. If left to ourselves, we're not doing too hot. But it can't be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because there's a human element to it. We just read about that. And we forget that there is a sovereign God over all of this. And so one person has said it like this, the acts of the sovereign God through the commands of his perfect son by the enablement of his Holy Spirit in mission of his chosen people. 
It's a very Puritan title to the book, but it captures everything. God who's worked from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 22-21. That God who is sovereign over all that through the commands of His Son. All Jesus began to do and teach, He's continuing to do. His Son is perfect, and so we can trust Him. In the power of the Spirit, you're going to see, if you want a theology of the Holy Spirit, we'll, we'll walk through it here in the book of Acts. And through His chosen people. And so you get the divine promise of God. You get the divine provision in His Son. You get the divine power in the Holy Spirit and the divine purpose for us. Our, our mission in life is not complex. It's very simple. Go make disciples. And we see that lived out in the book of Acts. And so we've covered one verse, Acts 1-1, in detail. In this first book, that's Luke, O Theophilus, the beloved of God, Luke has dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so in Acts, he's going to continue that. And we'll look into that. We only have a thousand six verses to go. So, you know, one verse a Sunday. I'm just kidding. We'll speed it up in places. We'll slow it down in places. Acts is the groundbreaking work, right? That's when something's being built. I'm sure I wasn't here. Some of you have been here for a long time. When they were building uh, Brush Creek Elementary School, it was just some land. And what did they do? They had this big celebration. They had like the mayor or somebody out, like me, who doesn't look good in a hard hat because you've just never seen him in a hard hat. And you're like, oh my, it's just show and they show up, right? And they're out there in their suits with their hard hats on, those big scissors that really don't work. And uh, they cut the tape because it's groundbreaking. And then the guy drives the uh, ceremonial backhoe over and starts to work, right? That's what's going on in the book of Acts. It's groundbreaking. And it's the greatest. Why is it the greatest construction project? Because Jesus Christ is building it. And what Jesus Christ builds doesn't fall. And what Jesus Christ builds isn't out of date. It never becomes condemned. And so this is the greatest construction project the world has ever seen, and it's still going on today. And so, what are our, um, what's my challenge? What's our works in progress to you today? I have two. One verse we covered, we've covered the whole Bible, two works in progress. Number one, get caught up in the story. I am a firm believer in the power of God's word. The Holy Spirit wrote it. It's God's plan for the world. Jesus is the center of the story, and it will change your life. I had the sweet privilege Friday night to spend a couple hours with laymen. Asher and I show up to the hotel. We go to a Gideon's banquet. And the guy said, man, they're bringing in some youth. And I'm like, that's right. How do you, you think I'm, what, 21, 22? <laughs> I didn't say that. I'm like, I'm 40 wonderful, man. I'm bringing in the youth. They probably were looking at my sweet and beautiful wife. Anyway, we go and sit with these laymen. You ever you want to hear about the Gideons? Let me tell you about the Gideons. These are laymen. Started in the late 1800s, right around 1900. Two businessmen in a hotel room, wanting to find a Bible, couldn't find a Bible, and they said, we're going to put a Bible in every hotel room. And they're even in Cancun. I flew down there to check it myself. (laughs) I'll do it again if you need me to. But here's the beauty about this ministry. Yeah, he's like that. It's funny. You never hear any scandal of the Gideons. You know why? Because they do it themselves. 
These are laymen. I said, can a pastor be getting? He said, no, you do enough. This is for the laymen to go out and put the word of God into the hands of people. And they pay for those little testaments they give you themselves. Because they believe in this. When I say get caught up in the story, it's not just a cute little way to end the sermon. I mean it. And they believe it. Get caught up in the story. Read and see yourself in the story. And these guys, they'll go out and they'll go to colleges. They go to hotels. That's probably what you've seen them. They go to hospitals. They go to the military. They go to fit their goal is to give one to every fifth grader who's ever lived. The little orange Bible. You've got one, right? She got it in fifth grade, still has it. They go to hospitals. They go to college campuses. They go to high school campuses. They went to one college campus. This guy handed out a Gideon Testament, and this student took it, and he said, this is God's word. I don't need it, and he throws it up onto the roof. Guess what? There's a dude on the roof. I'm serious, and he's praying, God, if you're so real, just give me a sign. (laughs) Right there. I just pounded the pulpit. That was a good one. That was good. A Gideon Testament lands right there. I'm going, this is too good. This is great. And, but they told story after story. There's a pastor in Glenwood Springs over a good church down there who was converted by a Gideon New Testament. And to hear his testimony, he went to 1 Timothy and he said, I was a blasphemer, uh, insolent, and a violent aggressor, but God showed mercy to me. And he said, you know how God showed mercy to me? And he held up his little green Gideon New Testament with his name in it. That's what I mean when I say get caught up into the story. Read the book of Acts. If you haven't ever read it, it's 28, I think it's 28 chapters. I think so. 27, hold on. 28, 28 chapters. Five minutes per chapter. It's 140 minutes. It's two hours in a little bit, right? Two hours and 20 minutes. You got two hours and 20 minutes? Read the book of Acts. Read the Bible. Get caught up into the story. Get the big vision. And then secondly, get involved in Jesus' community. This is his church. This is not my church. This is not our church. This is not the elders. This is Jesus' church. If you see, I don't have business cards. Somebody asked me for a business card the other day. I'm like writing my name on a scrap sheet of paper. I should probably get some business cards. But you won't see me put senior pastor on there because I'm not the, you know what senior means? It's like when you're, a, any seniors in high school in here? Anyone? Anyone? You're a senior. It's because you've been there longer than the freshmen. You're a senior. I'm not a senior pastor. I've been doing this for five years. Jesus has been doing it for a lot longer. He's the senior pastor. I'm the lead pastor with a bunch of good men who are elders. And so it's Jesus's church. It's his community. So I'd say join the community. Can't overemphasize what it. Get in a small group. I'm not just come here to pray at eight fifteen. Come here for Sunday school. Become a member. Become a servant. Become a leader. Get caught up into the story and get involved in His community. Because this, my friends, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail.